So this week's parasha, it's a double parasha, Vayakel and Pikude, and uh, it's, they're, the, they're the final parashas of the book of Exodus, the book of Shmois. And um, so they're really two separate parashas, Vayakel and then Pikude, but when we read them together, they're like one long parasha, Vayakel Pikude. And as we mentioned uh, just before, uh, if you read through it carefully, it pretty much seems like a copy and paste, a direct copy from the parashas of Truma and Tetzaveh, um, the instructions of how to build the Holy Temple, how to build the, the tabernacle, the Mishkan. And in this parasha, so they're not really instructions of how to build it, but uh, the Torah is telling us that this is what they actually did. Everything that God told Moses in Truma and Tetzaveh, the Jewish people did it. Now, uh, in general, the Torah is very precise in the type of, uh, in, in its text and how many how many words it uses. And... Um, Nothing is extra, none, nothing is superfluous, and if it can get away without, if, if, if the Torah can get away without saying something, that's usually the, the road that the Torah chooses, because um, brevity is best, right? Try to say everything that you can, and uh, it, it would seem that nothing would be missing. The Torah would say, all right, they, Moses gathered the people, and he told them everything that needed to be done, and he made a big uh, appeal, right? A big fundraising campaign. And they brought it right away. And he set up the team to deal with it. And they did everything that God told them to do. We could pretty much wrap up the entire story in about eight or nine verses and we're good to go. But instead the Torah says many, spends many, many dozens of verses um, dealing, repeating, seemingly repeating the instructions that were given to the Jewish people and telling us that they actually did it. Um, it's a very intriguing aspect of the Torah and of the parasha, but that's not the part that we're going to be discussing tonight. So we'll just let you think about it. Maybe at the end of the class, we'll get back to this, uh, to this issue. Uh, but today we're going to focus on something that actually is a chidush. Chidush means something new, something unique um, that is introduced in this week's parasha. <coughs> and that is the following. Even though in last week's parasha, when God concluded uh, instructing the Jewish people about the building of the tabernacle, he mentions the idea of Shabbos, which basically is communicating to us that even though building the tabernacle is very important, Shabbos comes first, right? It cannot, it cannot uh, come in the place of, of, of observing Shabbos, of the prohibitions of Shabbos. Shabbos is a day of rest, and therefore we're not allowed to work on the tabernacle. Um, in this week's parasha, when Moshe gathers the Jewish people and he tells them about everything, uh, the first thing he tells them is Shabbos. Right? And then he tells them about the building of the tabernacle. So that's telling us that Shabbos and the tabernacle uh, don't go together, or they cannot clash. Um, you cannot build a tabernacle on Shabbos. This also teaches us, and this also comes from last, from last week's parasha, that the specific details of what is prohibited on Shabbos is linked to the tabernacle. Right? So if you, look at the, if you look at the Ten Commandments, right? so the Torah tells us, um, that you should work for six days, and on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath, it's a holy day, it's a rest day, because God created the world in six days and rested in the seventh. What's the obvious question that one has? What, what is work? What's the definition of work? So we come to, this, so we come to last week's parasha, and this week's parasha, the fact that the prohibition of Shabbos, the, 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 how you say, the, the mitzvah of Shabbos 
is communicated together with the mitzvah of the building of the tabernacle that teaches us that the work that was used or that was done in the building of the tabernacle, that is the definition of the work that one is not allowed to do in, in that one is not allowed to do on Shabbos. Now that doesn't mean that one is not allowed to build, not one is only not allowed to build a tabernacle on Shabbos and you can do everything else. Our sages identified, or let's put it this way, God communicated to Moses 39 specific types of work that were used in the in the tabernacle, in the building of the tabernacle. And these 39 specific types of work are the basis and the foundation of the prohibitions of work on Shabbos. Um, we're not going to go through all 39 of them, but uh, one of the big things is, for example, in the Holy Temple, they needed to have the bread for the show table, right? The lechem upon him. So in order to have bread, you can't just go to the store and buy bread. You have to plow a field, and you have to plant seeds, and you have to harvest, and you have to you have to thresh, and you have to put them in the mill. You have to make flour, and then you have to bake, and all of that type of stuff. So there's uh, at least a dozen uh, types of uh, main elements of work that are involved in preparing bread. All of these elements of work involved in preparing bread are prohibited on Shabbos. Not just if you're preparing bread, but in any way. For example, for example. The first one is plowing, right? In order, in order to have bread, the first order of business, the first work that you need to do in order to make bread is to plow a field. What is the definition of plowing? You're making holes in the ground. That's what plowing means. You're breaking the ground in order that it should be able to uh, accept, to receive the seeds that are going to be placed into it. Um, so first you have to plow it. So, you're make, so, so what is the prohibition of plowing, the prohibition is one is not allowed to make a hole in the ground. So on Shabbos, one is just not, the, the prohibition of plowing on Shabbos is not limited to going with a, a plow and a cow and plowing a whole field. No, 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 no. The prohibition of Shabbos is that one is not allowed to make a hole in the ground. So for example, on Shabbos, we're not allowed to take a flag and place it in the ground. Can't do that on Shabbos because you're making a hole in the ground. Um, if you're if you're sitting in, in, in on the ground, you're not allowed to dig with your fingers. That is an element of plowing. Um, I'm 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 uh, how do you say dwelling on this issue of plowing because this will help us understand the next step uh, in our discussion today. So um, so this week's parasha and last week's parasha, but this week's parasha as well teaches us the coral the, the connection, the relationship between Shabbos and the tabernacle, that it's much more than just the fact that we're not allowed to build a tabernacle on Shabbos, but the work that was needed in order to build a tabernacle, that's the type of work that is prohibited on Shabbos. Okay. So we're going to stick to the av malacha, the element of work, the essential type of work of plowing. That's, that's, the, that's the type of work we're going to talk about for the rest of the day, for the, for the rest of this class. And it's going to accompany us uh, throughout this conversation here. Now, uh, let's start off with source number one. Moses gathered the entire Jewish people and told them, these are what God has commanded to do. For six days you shall work, and on the seventh shall be holy. A day of rest for God, whoever works on this day shall die. Do not kindle fire in your encampments on the Shabbat. The, the specific type of work that is um, are, uh, expressed uh, in, the, in, the, in the parasha clearly is the idea of turning on a fire, 
uh, lighting a fire, and there's a conversation of why why the Torah specifically mentions fire. <coughs> but uh, lighting fire is only one of 39 elements of work that are prohibited on Shabbos. In fact, lighting fire is one of the types of things that you need in order to bake bread, right? Because how do you bake bread? You have to bake it in an oven. So you have to heat up the oven. So you have to turn on the fires. That's also part of what the what the, what the Mishnah calls sidura de pas, the 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 the, the, the type of work that is that is involved in baking bread. Now let's continue in the parsha. The parsha says the following: Moses told the entire Jewish people, "This is what God commanded to say: Bring from among yourselves a donation for God. Every generous-hearted person shall bring God a donation of gold, silver, and bronze." And it speaks about uh, the, 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 the epic appeal, uh, the fact that everyone brought everything. And God continued. Then Moses said to the Jewish people, See, God has chosen Betzalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. God has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. Now, um, you'd think, okay, the Torah is just simply telling us that Betzalel is now in charge of building the Mishkan, and you should just know that you need to have someone who's extremely wise and knowledgeable in order to do it, because it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world. But our sages tell us, the Talmud points out, and it says, hey, since the prohibitions of Shabbos are learned from the work that was done in building the tabernacle, there's a very important point that is being communicated in these verses about Petzalel with regard to Shabbos. And what is that? Just like when it came to the tabernacle, it was impossible to to make the stuff for the tabernacle absentmindedly. You couldn't do it just like, oh, you know, I I took the gold and I I just took my my little uh, chisel and went around the gold and oh, it came, it looked looked so beautiful. No, 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 no. When it came to building the tabernacle, there had to be intention. You had to be focused. You had to have concentration on what you were doing. From here we learn that on Shabbos, in order to be guilty of violating the Shabbos, one needs to do a prohibited action intentionally but doing it unintentionally there's no foul what's an example for this so let's talk about the prohibition of plowing right so we said we're not which means you're not allowed to make holes in the ground making any hole in the ground is a problem okay now let's say i have a plastic chair in my backyard plastic chair it's not very heavy And if I'm going to drag the plastic chair across the yard, it might make a hole in the ground. It might not. It could sail above the ground, pretty much, without making a hole. Or it might make a hole, I don't know. But definitely, if your intention is to make a hole in the ground, you wouldn't take a plastic chair and pull it across the yard. Now, if you had a very, very heavy table in the backyard, and you pulled the heavy table across the yard, that is definitely going to make a hole in the ground. Guess what? If you take that plastic chair and pull it across, and it happens to be that that plastic chair, the, 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 the legs of the chair made a hole in the ground, no foul. Why? Because by definition, when you're pulling that plastic chair, that, that light plastic chair across the yard, 
you're not doing it in order to make a hole in the ground. That was definitely not your intention. What about if you sit on a chair? If you sit on the chair, also it depends. It depends what's going to happen as a result. If when you sit on the chair for sure it's going to make a hole in the ground, then don't do it, right? Uh, for another thing, one of the things that are, that are not allowed on Shabbos is you're not allowed to uh, disconnect um, anything that grows from the ground. You're not allowed to disconnect it from its source, right? You're not allowed to put an apple off a tree. You're not allowed to, um, you're not allowed to harvest, right? It comes from the essential work is harvesting. You're pulling, you're pulling the, 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 said, the wheat. You're cutting the wheat from the ground. Well, the prohibition of cutting wheat from the ground is not limited to wheat. It's anything. So if let's say you're sitting on the grass and you start pulling grass out of the ground, that's prohibited, right? Now, let's say you walk on the grass. What happens when you walk on grass? You just smash it. It doesn't break. You know, oh, when you walk on grass, you're definitely pushing the grass down. There's, not, there's no foul in that. There's the possibility that by walking on grass, you might cause the grass to get ripped out of the ground. You might. But that was certainly not your intention. And that's not the way you rip grass out of the ground. So you are allowed to walk across the lawn. You're allowed to walk across, and if grass gets pulled out of the ground as a result of you stepping on the grass, no foul. Why? Because it was not intentional. In other words, the def- the, by definition, your action is not the type of action that intentionally does this type, that, that intentionally does, that would intentionally have this type of result. In other words, the only thing that's prohibited on Shabbos is an action that would intentionally result in this result of a hole in the ground or pulling grass out of the ground, etc. Where do we know this from? We know this from these words in this week's parasha. That just like when it came to building the tabernacle, intention, concentration was crucial. The same thing is true with regard to the definition of prohibitions on Shabbos. Prohibition on Shabbos is only if it's intentional. Now, if you do something and you say, I didn't intend for that to happen, but you know for a fact it will happen, then there's, a, for example, the, the, the very famous example that's given, might be a little bit gory, but uh, this is the example that's given and, and pr- probably was much more prevalent uh, in ancient times. Um, the example is like this. Let's say there's a guy that wants to entertain his child. Okay? Don't arrest me for this, but he wants to entertain his child. What's the best way to entertain the child? With the head of a chicken. The head of a chicken. Now, how do you get a head of a chicken? Got to snap it off of the chicken, right? You snap it off of the chicken and give it to the kid to play with, right? So a guy is going to come and say, hey, look, I want to entertain my kid. To entertain my kid, I have to snap the head off of the chicken. So I'm going to go snap it off and give it to the kid. I-, I didn't intend for the chicken to die. My friend, knocking a head off of a chicken, that's the way it dies. Right? So by definition, you're killing the chicken. You're not allowed to kill a chicken on Shabbos. Right? That's prohibited. You're not allowed to slaughter on Shabbos. You're not allowed to kill, you're not allowed to kill anything on Shabbos for that matter. Right? That's called in, 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 the, in the Talmudic and Halachic language, psikresha. You're going to knock a head off of a chicken and say, oh, I didn't intend for it to die. In other words, the, the idea here is the action that you do, if this action won't necessarily cause the result which is prohibited, so then it's an unintentional result. Walking on grass doesn't necessarily tear grass out of the ground. Go ahead, walk on the grass. If grass got torn out of the ground, no foul. Pulling the the very light 
plastic chair across the yard won't necessarily make a hole in the ground. So fine, so pull it. And if it made a hole in the ground, no foul. Why? Because this action does not necessarily lead to this result. This action is not done with the intention of the result of a hole in the ground or a result of, of, of grass that's pulled out of the ground. Fine. All right. So now we have this, uh, this premise. Um, now the question is, this idea that a prohibition is only a prohibition, an avera, a sin, a, a violation of God's mitzvah is only a violation if you had intention or not, is this exclusively for Shabbos? Or does this apply to all sins? If someone completely unintentionally ate something non-kosher, is that a violation or not? Fair question. So, page number four. Regarding, this is the Rebbe, the Rebbe is going to start, the idea here is not necessarily to get into a very deep uh, halachic analysis on this issue. We're going to go through these ideas, and the Rebbe is going to extract from this something so tremendous about the psychology of a Jew. And hopefully this will, this will help us uh, uh, live more Jewishly with more confidence and, and happiness. Alrighty, so page number two. Regarding the law that unintended violations are exempt from punishment, uh, which, which basically means if it's exempt from punishment, that means that there, was, there really was no foul. Okay? So there is a disagreement among the halachic authorities. The Sheiltais maintains that this exemption only applies in the laws of Shabbos. There is a unique clause in the laws of Shabbos that only calculated actions are forbidden. And if the violation wasn't the person's actual intention, the act does not qualify as calculated. And the reason is because uh, we have it specifically from this week's parasha, which is talking about Shabbos and the Mishkan, etc. But in other areas of Jewish law, Sheiltes maintains, even if the violation wasn't the express intention of the person, he is still liable for the act. So if someone completely by mistake and totally unintentionally ate something that was non-kosher, the Sheiltes would say that they, it's still a foul, it's still a problem. He still has to own up for that. However, most halachic authorities disagree with Sheiltes and are of the opinion that unintended violations are exempt from punishment in all areas of Jewish law. All right. So now we're going to go with the majority. Usually when you have a majority and a minority, go with the majority opinion. So the majority opinion here is that when it comes to violations, when it comes to um, violating God's negative commandments, there must be intention. If there was no intention, if by definition there was no intention, no foul. Regarding positive mitzvot, there is a disagreement whether intent is required in order to fulfill them. The consensus conclusion is that there are some types of mitzvot that are fulfilled even if the person did them without mitzvah intent. Moreover, there are some mitzvot that even if a person was compelled to do them against his will, he has still fulfilled the mitzvah. So let's go to the sources here. So we're going to start source number two in the Alter Rebbe's Code of Jewish Law. All mitzvahs require intent in order to fulfill the obligation of doing that mitzvah. If one did it without intending to fulfill their obligation and did it in passing or with a different intent, not for this mitzvah, they have not fulfilled their biblical obligation. Others say, others say, Alter brings another opinion, that mitzvahs do not require intent and even when done in passing, one has fulfilled 
their obligation post facto. And it would seem that in many mitzvot, this is the case. Let's see how the Alter Rebbe explains this in source number three. One who ate matzah. We're talking here about the night of the Seder, right? So it's the 15th of, of Nisan. And there's a Jew who uh, did not go to a Seder. But it so happened to be that uh, he ate matzah that night for whatever reason. He was eating matzah. If one ate matzah without intent, meaning he did not intend on fulfilling his obligation by eating this matzah, so such a person has fulfilled his obligation. Therefore, even if he did not wish to eat matzah and Gentiles or bandits forced him to, he has fulfilled his obligation because even unwillingly, his body benefited from it. Since the definition of the mitzvah of matzah is that your body must digest matzah, it must benefit from the matzah, it has to eat the matzah. If you ate the matzah, you ate it. We'll learn a little later that that if a person while he was eating matzah said, I don't want to do the mitzvah of eating the matzah, then for sure he didn't do the mitzvah. But here we're saying that if a person ate matzah without the intention to fulfill the mitzvah of matzah, he still did the mitzvah. And even if he was forced to eat the matzah, and as long as he did not have the opposite intention, the mitzvah was done. So let's see how the Rebbe analyzes this idea. With regards to intent, there is a difference between positive and negative mitzvot. With a negative mitzvah, if the actor had no intent to transgress, he did not violate at all. However, a person who performed a positive mitzvah without intention has fulfilled the mitzvah. What is this, a double standard? A bias toward, towards mitzvahs? What's the idea? We have to understand this idea. And the Rebbe is going to explain that it's not just, hey, it's not fair. Why can't mitzvahs and sins be on the same level? Either they both need intention or they both don't need intention. In fact, it makes more sense that mitzvahs should need intention and sins should not need intention. Why? This difference requires explanation. Seemingly, the reverse should be true. A mitzvah, the definition of mitzvah, the translation of the word mitzvah in Hebrew is commandment. Sivui. But in Aramaic, it's tzavta, which means to connect. A mitzvah is a connection. The effect of a mitzvah is that the person performing it and the physical item used to perform it become connected to God. A transgression has the opposite effect. It disconnects the person and any associated physical items from godliness. Now, what do we do mitzvahs with? We do mitzvahs with physical objects. That's how you do mitzvahs. There's almost no mitzvah that you could do with a spiritual object. Everything is physical. Huh? To, to, to love God, you do it with your heart. It's a physical heart. Every mitzvah has got to do with something physical, right? You're right, you're right. Love is more metaphysical, but it still has a connection to the physical arts. So, now, so let's focus on the vast majority of mitzvahs that are specifically uh, physical. And uh, so, so we'll focus on matzah or, you know, dragging the, dra- dragging the, 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 the chair across the, across the lawn, okay? So before being, let's continue in the Rebbe's words here on page six, the last paragraph, before being associated with the performance of a mitzvah or a transgression, all physical things fall under the category of klipas noiga. The Alter Rebbe in Tanya explains that in this world, you've got like three categories. You've got holy, godly, divine. You have 
evil, and then you've got the middle ground, the gray area. Now that gray area is not holy. It's not evil, but it's not holy. And, um, and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the term that he gives for this gray area is klipas noiga. We're not going to get into the details of the term and what it means, etc. But, but what's important for us to understand is that it's, it's basically a neutral zone, right? It's a neutral zone. If a person comes and uses this physical object for a mitzvah, he pulls it out of the neutral zone and pulls it into holiness. If he does a sin with this object, he pulls it into evil, into the opposite of God, right? But the fact of the matter is that when it's in the neutral zone, it's, it's closer to evil than to good. Let's put it this way. To be connected to God, that's unique. That's, that's, like, that, that's against the regular. That's against the norm. Neutral zone is, by definition, not connected. So, before being associated with the performance of a mitzvah or transgression, all physical things fall under the category of klipas neiga. This category is mostly negative. So all physical things are naturally closer to negativity than holiness. It therefore appears logical that it should be easier to detach something physical from godliness than to connect it. So if you have uh, wheat, right? This wheat could either be chametz or it could either be matzah, right? Even when it becomes matzah, even when it becomes matzah, matzah is not automatically holy. Matzah only becomes holy when a Jew eats the matzah on the night of the 15th of Nisan. That's when it becomes a holy mitzvah matzah. So this matzah, oh, and by the way, if you take this matzah and turn it into chametz, which might be almost impossible, but whatever, even if, let's say there was this possibility to turn this matzah into chametz, so then it would become sinful, right? But what are we saying here? That if a person took this matzah or took this wheat in order for that wheat to become chametz and a person would have to eat that chametz on Pesach, he needs to, he needs to eat that chametz intentionally on Pesach <clears throat> in order for that wheat, in order for that flour to become detached from God. But that very same wheat that became matzah, if a Jew eats that matzah on the night of the 15th without having concentration and intention to do the mitzvah, to connect it to God, it automatically connects to God. And it would seem the opposite should be true. It should be easier to transfer this physical object, which is today called matzah, into the evil side, into, be complete, into being completely detached from God, than to attach it to God. So it's not just why is there a double standard. When it comes to sins, you have to have intention. When it comes to mitzvahs, you don't have to have intention. It, it doesn't make any sense. It should be easier to detach things from God because they're already anyway detached but it should be easier to, to make them further away from God than to attach them to God. And here we see the fact of the matter is that to attach them to God, all you need to do is do the deed. Forget about intention. Intention is not critical. But to take this detached item and to make it further from God, for that, intention is critical. Why is this? What's the deal? Uh, page number seven. Nevertheless, we are told that a mitzvah can be performed even without intention. Moreover, sometimes a mitzvah can be performed even against the person's will. What's an example of this? Regarding the mitzvah of charity, the Talmud relates how Rabbi Yechanan ben Zakkai compelled verbally his nephews to give charity. Well, what, what's the deal here? Let's go to the story. It's in the Talmud, Baba Vasra. 
Source number four, Rabbi Yechanan saw in a dream that his sister's sons needed to lose 700 gold coins. That was a decree from God. He compelled them to give the money to charity. At the end of the year, they were left with 17 of those 700 coins, which he didn't manage to get them to, do- to get them get him to donate. So they had given 683 gold coins to charity throughout the year, 17 coins left from this calculation. The day before Yom Kippur, the Caesar sent agents to seize the 17 coins for taxes. The government, the IRS, showed up to the nephew's home and said, you owe us 17 gold coins. Rabbi Yechanan told them, do not worry that they will take more from you. They only took the 17 remaining coins. How do you know? They asked him. I saw it in a dream, he answered them, and told them his dream. So what happened there? Rabbi Yechanan, for whatever reason, was gifted with this knowledge that his nephew is going to lose 700 gold coins. And he decided, instead of them losing 700 gold coins like total losers... The, the, the decree was those 700 gold coins will not be in their possession. But I can get them to, to have the, the credit of these coins. What better way to retain a connection to this money? In other words, what's the best way to lose money? To charity. <laughs> That's the idea here. The best way to lose money is to lose it to charity. Because then you have so much credit to your name. You, you have mitzvahs, right? You were able to take all of that money instead of just losing it to the government when it's basically a loss, you're a total loser, you took all of that money and connected it to God and connected yourself to God. Mm-hmm. Now, they did not know that they're doing, in other words, they knew they're doing the mitzvah of but they weren't doing it on their own. Their uncle was forcing them to do it. Apparently, I mean, he was a very uh, influential person and a big tzaddik. So if the tzaddik comes and says, you must give 100 gold coins, you must give another 50 gold coins, etc. So they did. Not necessarily were they happy with it, but they listened to their uncle. It turns out that even when they were giving money to charity against their will, so to speak, not with, um, with, 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 you know, not with their full heart, it still was to their credit. What do we see from here? Then when it comes to a mitzvah, as long as you don't have the opposite intention, but without having mitzvah intention, it becomes a mitzvah automatically. But when it comes to a sin, one must have sinful intention. To connect to God is easier than to go further away from God. To connect something which is, which is, uh, by, def- which is by default detached from God is easier than to take that which is detached and to further it away. Uh, we're going to continue with the idea of charity here on page 8. We even find that the mitzvah of charity can be fulfilled without a person's knowledge. Forget about being forced to give charity, even if you have no idea that you gave the charity. The law is that if a person loses money and a poor person found it and derived sustenance from it, the loser has fulfilled the mitzvah of charity, since ultimately he provided the poor, he provided the poor person with sustenance. This creates a connection with God, even though the person had no intent or knowledge, a physical act without any spiritual element. And here, it's like so easy to take the money and connect it to God, even without the person having any intention of, of it becoming charity. Source number five, Rabbi Lazarus says, uh, there's a mitzvah that when you are cutting your produce in your field and you forget some in the field, the verse says, for this you shall be blessed. If you, if you left a few, cur- a few, uh, a, a few um, 
stalks of wheat in the field or, or some sheaves of wheat. There's a whole bunch of different laws uh, determining what is considered forgotten. But if it is forgotten, you have to leave it there for the poor. And the Torah says, for this you shall be blessed. So Abulazim and Azariah learns from here, the Torah blesses one who unwittingly did a mitzvah. From here we can say that if a person was carrying a coin in their clothing and it fell out and was found by a poor person, God rewards them. So this is an amazing thing. And when it comes to a mitzvah, no intention is needed in order to attach a physical object to God. Let's continue on page 8 on the bottom. Regarding transgression, even though material matters are naturally separated from godliness and a physical act of transgression was performed with them, but since the transgression was unintentional, it has no effect. Not only is the person exempt from punishment, no transgression is considered to have occurred. And the action has no negative metaphysical effect at all. If a person totally by mistake and unintentionally ate something that was not kosher, it doesn't have an impact. Let's see this from the Tanya. The various purifying processes and punishments in purgatory or in this world, um, let's, let's skip this, uh, correspond to the extent and specific nature of the blemish caused by the sin in the soul and in its source in the supernal worlds. When a, when, a, when a Jew sins, it blemishes the soul, and it causes a problem in the supernal worlds. In order to fix the blemish or to fix the problem in the supernal worlds, he, he has to go through punishment, purgatory, whatever it is. Each transgression has its appropriate punishment for the purpose of cleansing and removing the stain and the blemish caused by that specific sin. Similarly, the blemish caused by the sins carrying the penalty of death at the hands of heaven or karis varies from one sin to another. What do we see from here? That if there's a blemish, I'm sorry, if there's a if there's a if there's a punishment, that means that there was a blemish. If there's no punishment, that means there was no blemish. What what did we learn with regard to sins? That if there was no intention, there's no punishment, which means if there was no intention, there's no blemish. So what's the deal here? Why is it easier to do a mitzvah than to do a sin? Or in metaphysical terms, why is it easier to make a physical object which is by default detached from God? Why is it easier to make it holy and attached to God than to take that same detached physical object and to push it further away from God? So page 10. Here we're going to talk about the Moda'ani. So all those that say Moda'ani, perk up. And if you don't say Moda'ani, you should start saying Moda'ani, but don't think that you're out of the picture because that's going to be the final thing that the Rebbe says. A very fascinating concept here. The psychology of a Jew, the default settings of a Jew, you know, the, the factory settings, right? The, the, you have, you have a, a computer or a phone or whatever it is, it's causing tzaris, there's the factory settings. Let's go to the default. So what is the default setting of a Jew? The explanation. At the beginning of the day, every Jew connects themselves to God through reciting moda'ani and other prayers. And this forges a connection with God that lasts all day. Don't think that the few minutes in the morning that you say Modani, put on tefillin and say some prayers is isolated to the early morning. In fact, this is something that sets the tone for the entire day. And we're going to see a parallel to this in the laws of marriage, which are, are very, uh, very specific and, 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 and serious business. Therefore, even if the individual later performed a mitzvah act without any intent, that act is infused with the connection with God forged at the beginning of the day. 
So what, what's the idea? Where are we learning this from? Why is it that just because I started off the day uh, connecting to God, so why should that have an impact on my actions throughout the day? Uh, before we continue, so like this. In Judaism, how, how does a man marry a woman? Marriage occurs when a, a man gives an unmarried woman, gives her, the way we do it today is he gives her a ring, and he tells her, you are betrothed to me with this ring according to the laws of Moses and Israel. So if a guy walks over to a woman and gives her a ring and walks away, she's not married to him. But if the guy walks up to her and in the presence of witnesses gives her a ring and says, I'm giving you this ring in order to marry you, then she's married. That, that's, the, that's the moment when marriage happens. That's the action that causes that bond, that soul bond, to happen. And that bond is not just a metaphysical one. It is one that, how you say, um, ha- has its impact in the physical world, and there are legal ramifications to it. She's a married woman to this man. And if she wants to marry another man, she has to get a get from this person. She has to get a divorce bill. Now let's say, let's say, there, you know, there's a man and woman, they're sitting by the table, and there are a few people sitting over there, and they're talking about marriage, they're talking about getting married. Whatever, whatever, that's the conversation, that, that's what the conversation is all about. The two of them getting married. And then, at a certain point during this uh, conversation or, or, or this setting, the guy pulls out a ring and hands it to her, puts it on her finger, and she accepts it. And there are witnesses watching. And he doesn't say a word. Is she married? So let's see. If a man and woman were talking about marriage, and in the middle the man gave the woman a valuable item without saying explicitly that this is for the purpose of consecrating her for marriage, the woman is still consecrated to be his wife. This comes from the Talmud, source number 7, one who was discussing marriage or divorce with a woman and then gave her a bill of divorce or a wedding ring without explicitly stating his intent, Rabbi Yaisi says, it is sufficient. Rabbi Yehuda says in the name of Shmuel that this is only when they were discussing that subject. Right? But what's, what's the point here? The point is that we see in halacha, in Jewish law, with regard to marriage, that if the setting, if the conversation is about marriage, any action that can consecrate that marriage, that can make the marriage happen, is official. Even without having the specific intention while doing that action. <clears throat> so, if a Jew starts off the day and says, I, I give thanks to you, all, uh, God, right? You don't say God's name in Modani. I give thanks to you, a king, you know, a, a, a living king. So, Everything that the Jew does throughout the day is in this context. Modani is starting off the conversation. And once you started the conversation, anything that you do throughout the day that is in stride with this conversation, <coughs> then it works. Automatically, the intention is there. <coughs> Page 11. This is the case only for positive mitzvot. For transgressions, however, if the person didn't expressly intend to violate the action, to violate the action isn't a transgression. 
such a non-purposeful act is like a body without a soul. In addition, as a result of saying Modani and the like at the beginning of the day, we have at least a subconscious intention contrary to the transgression. No one wants to transgress in front of the king. So if you start off your day by making the statement that the king is in front of you, the king is with you, and that everything you have is from the king, from God, so then you, you're certainly not you're certainly not in the in the in the mode of transgression. So if a person transgressed completely unintentionally, it's not considered a transgression because you know, the, 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 the default setting is he doesn't want to transgress. Everyone, even those that maintain that mitzvahs don't require intention, concede that if a person had a specific intention not to fulfill a mitzvah, they haven't fulfilled it. And the same should be true for transgressions. Intention not to transgress should mean that the act can't be considered a transgression. <coughs> Let's go to page 12. Okay, so now, so what's the, what's the logic so far? Since we start off the morning with modani and with prayers, so the, 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 the context of our life during that day is, we want to do what Hashem wants, we want to do mitzvahs, that is our intention, and our intention is not to do sins. Therefore, if a person unintentionally did a mitzvah, we attach it, you know, automatic, that's good, that, that, that is good enough to attach this physical object and the Jew to God. Why? Because he already set the tone in the beginning of the day. And if he did a transgression unintentionally, say, there's no intention of here, so it's not a transgression, that's it. And we know that this person is on, is on, a, is on the opposite mode. He's on the mode of doing what God wants. However, the Rebbe is going to say that's not enough. Because this rule, that if a mitzvah is done unintentionally, it's still a mitzvah. And if a transgression was done unintentionally, it's not a transgression, applies to every single Jew, even a Jew that does not say modani in the morning. There are some Jews like that out there in the world. There are plenty of Jews that are, that are not aware of modani. Let's continue on page 12. There is still a point that requires further clarification. The laws that mitzvahs don't require intention and that unintended transgressions aren't punishable are true for all Jews, even those that didn't begin the day with an act of connection to God and didn't even say modani. Why does the aforementioned difference between positive mitzvahs and transgressions apply to such a Jew as well? The truth is that each and every Jew, deep in his soul, wishes to do good. This desire may be subconscious, but it is still a practical reality. So it renders the person occupied in this matter. This can be compared to a law concerning sacrifices. Sacrifices that were offered in the Holy Temple have to be offered, slaughtered, and the blood has to be sprinkled, and it has to be offered on the altar with intention, right? The Kohanim have to have the right intentions in order for these sacrifices to be considered legitimate. Even if the Kohanim lack the required intention while offering the sacrifices, the rabbinic court imposes the intention on them. There's a very fascinating concept here. Lev bezdin masna aleim. That, in other words, the, the fact that they're working as agents of the Jewish people, and who represents the Jewish people? The Sanhedrin. Since they are, you know, why is a Kohen coming to the Holy Temple? To serve God. And, and, and to do so <clears throat> within the system of how the service is meant to be. Now, for whatever reason, the Kohen doesn't have control over his intentions. And while he was offering a sacrifice, he was thinking about, uh, I don't know, Timbuktu. He was thinking about something, he was distracted. 
But the fact that he's there means that he, that he wants to do the right thing. Since at our core, and the same thing is true about every single Jew. By definition, every Jew wants to do a mitzvah. That's the fact. Since at our core, we all wish to follow the instructions of the court, their imposition of intent is effective and it is considered as if the kayanim themselves have the proper intention. This is why mitzvahs don't require intention. Because every Jew is considered to be occupied in this matter. When we do a mitzvah, even without intention, our true desire is to devote ourselves to God. As a result, this forges a connection. With the, as a result, this forges a connection with God. The connection is akin to the initial erusin stage of marriage, betrothal, and it will eventually lead to the final stage of nisuin, marriage, when, 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 when the marriage is going to be uh, consecrated. As the verse states regarding the Jewish people and, and God in the Messianic era, on that day you shall call me my man and not just my husband. Um, in Hebrew, Ishi, um, and not, basically a husband could be someone that's only that, that they made the initial connection, but they never really consummated the marriage. Ishi, my man, only happens after the marriage was consummated. So the Jewish people, until the coming of Mashiach, it's like we're engaged to God. We're connected. We can't go to anyone else, but it's not, it's not, it, it, was, it wasn't yet consummated. But when Mashiach will come, that marriage to God will be consummated. May we merit this speedily in our days. You know, we're coming from, we're coming from Purim. And there's a very fascinating, um, the, the, Rebbe, the Rebbe spoke on Purim 1972. He said, you know, if, if you want to understand something about Jews, pay attention to how anti-Semites talk about Jews. Right? Mm-hmm. You know the famous story about uh, the, there were two Jews sitting on, on the bench in Berlin in Germany in 1933. And one Jew looks at the other one and he's shocked to see that the guy is reading Der Sturmer. Right? Der Sturmer was the, was the, Nazi, uh, the Nazi newspaper. Mm-hmm. So he said, Yankel, how could you read Der Sturmer? Anti-Semite says, you know, when I read the other newspapers, I get depressed. All the tzaddas that are happening to the Jews. This this Jewish judge was killed, and this lawyer lost his law degree. And all these different they lost his license, and this doctor was sent out of the country. I read their sturmer, I see that the Jews they run the banks and they run politics, and they're all you know. So if you pay attention to what the anti-Semites say about the Jews, you'll find out something very important about Jews. So in the Megillah, in the story of Purim, one of the worst anti-Semites, his name was Haman, right? So Haman gives a whole a whole speech about the Jews who they are. He's trying to convince Akashverish to allow him to get rid of the Jews, to annihilate them. So what, how does he start off? He says, Yeshnoi am echod. There is a nation that is spread out all over the kingdom, and they're different, whatever. He goes on. The Talmud says a very interesting thing. Haman doesn't say, Yesh, there is. He says, Yeshnoi. If you take that word Yeshnoi, which also means there is, Yeshnoi, if you use different vowels for those same letters, you could read the words Yashnu, which means they're asleep. There is a sleeping nation. And the Talmud says, what, what was he saying by that? He was saying was that even though the Jews are connected to God and they have a powerful God that might protect them, you should just know they're sleeping. In other words, they're not really connected to God anymore. They're, they're, they're sleeping. So they said, you realize what's going on over here? What happens when someone is sleeping? They're still very, very much there. All you have to do is wake that person up and he's in the game. Rebbe said, 
Haman is trying to find problems with the Jews. And he's going to exaggerate. Haman cannot bring himself to say that the Jews are disconnected from God, are disinterested in God, are, are, are willingly going against God. He can't bring himself to say that because it's not true. All he can say is, they've fallen asleep. They're in a coma. Now, being asleep is a pretty bad thing, right? When you're asleep, you can't accomplish anything. But if you're only asleep and you're not off the beaten track, all you got to do is wake them up. And the Rebbe spoke at length and he said, what does that tell you? That all you need to do, you don't have to convince a Jew to do a mitzvah. You just got to wake him up. When you wake up the Jew, the Jew when, the, when the Jew realizes, when, when the Jew comes to consciousness, automatically he's going to take to the mitzvah. That's the idea that we're saying here. Even if a Jew doesn't say modami, but at his core, he's a full-on Jew, and a Jew wants to do what Hashem wants. And if you get that Jew to do the mitzvah, even if he didn't have the specific intention to do the mitzvah, he doesn't even know what it is. But his body eats the matzah as long as he didn't have the opposite intention, which is very seldom such a thing. Why would someone eat matzah on the 15th and say, I'm not doing the mitzvah of matzah? You got to be quite uh, learned and knowledgeable to have such an intention. So the default setting of a Jew is that if he's munching on a matzah, the 15th of Nisan, even if he has no idea what the matzah is, he's connecting to God. Why? Because really, he wants to do the mitzvah. And if you would go and explain it to him, if you just wake him up, if you would just, you know, snap in his ears and wake him up and say, hey, Yid, wake up. He would want to do it. And therefore, um, even if he did it without intention, the matzah and the Jew connects to God Almighty. And may God help us that we should appreciate this idea. We should do all the mitzvahs that we can, whenever we can, and encourage others to do mitzvahs, even if they might seem a little bit sleepy and in a coma. But uh, all, all it takes is uh, to know that under that uh, the slumbering giant there is a Yiddish, uh, there's what they call in Yiddish, a pintal yid, that small little spark of Judaism that really wants to express itself through mitzvahs and through learning Torah. And when all of us are going to do mitzvahs and learn Torah and encourage everyone else to do so, that's going to prepare the world for the world to get out of its sleep and uh, welcome Mashiach when the world is going to be at peace with itself and everyone is going to be at peace. May it happen very soon. Amen. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you. All righty. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Yeah.